coming back, you know. I think about that every day. I didn't used to, I'll be honest. You know it's going to be a sermon when I started crying during worship, so I'm coming prepared. (laughs) It might be a three-tissue day, I don't know. I didn't always think about the return of the Lord. I mean, there was a period of time where the thought of that totally freaked me right out because I didn't understand. And I felt like, and let's be honest, pre-marriage, we always were worried that we might get raptured before we got married. We won't go into all those details, but you are all just as guilty. And if you're a single, you know. But see, there's this moment that's coming. And our faith will be sight. See, there's a moment that's coming. When he's coming back for his bride. Are you ready? See, here's the thing. I think that many of us say we're ready all the time, but are we really ready? See, he waits. Our Father in heaven withholds the return of his son for our sake so that the world can hear, so that we can get our acts together, so that those who have not heard the gospel can hear it. But friends, every day I feel the weight that the time is short. We're running out of time. And who we are and how we live, it matters. It matters to our king. It matters to this lost and dying world. And I, and I really do hope that the words of James are still punching you in the gut. But we are beginning a new sermon series today. And apparently years ago, there was this letter to the editor in the British Weekly. It read, Dear Sir, the editor was a guy. It seems ministers feel their sermons are very important. We do. And they spend a great deal of time preparing them. Also true. I've been attending church quite regularly for 30 years. And I've probably heard 3,000 of them. To my consternation, I discovered I cannot remember a single sermon. I I wonder if a minister's time might be more profitably spent on something else. It goes on to say, for weeks a storm of editorial responses ensued. And it finally ended by this letter. Dear sir, I have been married for 30 years. And during that time, I've eaten about 32,850 meals, mostly my wife's cooking. Suddenly, I've discovered I cannot remember the menu of a single meal. And yet, I have the distinct impression that without them, I would have starved to death long ago. 
So preachers in the house, be encouraged. See, there's a good chance many of you don't even remember what I preached two weeks ago. There's a good chance you don't remember what you had for dinner Friday night. But what I do know is that whether you remember or not, in the proclamation of the word of God, the spirit of God is using it to nourish our spirits. And as we dig into the word, the spirit of God brings it forth in us. And it is my sincerest hope, I literally wrote this, just so you know, it's my sincerest hope that you joined us this morning with expectation. And I think that the Lord said, hey, you're not expecting enough. So he tweaked our interest, didn't he? The Lord wants our attention. See, the world is out of control, right? It's out of control. Nobody is driving the bus anymore. And I, and I think that many of us are hoping that there's going to be a correction, of course, to something we're at least a little bit more familiar with. But loved ones, I'm, I'm not convinced in my spirit that that's going to happen. I, I don't know. I don't have a prophetic word from the Lord on it. But I, I'm not sure that we're ever going to feel stability in the world again. And you know what? I'm not sure that we're supposed to. I'm not sure that the people of God should feel stable in the world. I mean, James kind of talked about us being too comfortable with the world. So maybe the instability and the disruption is more of a blessing to us. Because perhaps it's turning us to fix our attention more on the Lord and to find our stability in our king. Because we're not citizens of this world. We're only passing through. We're on embassy assignment as citizens of heaven. So this series that I've entitled Revive Us is a call. A call for the move of the Spirit and a call for obedience. The word revive, just in case you can't remember or you don't know, means to restore to consciousness, to regain life, or strength, to regain strength, or to be given new strength or new energy. So let's be honest. We need to be revived. We've been a little sleepy as a church. The Western church is a little sleepy. And we need to be woken up. So I have this personal longing. Since the day I met Jesus, I have longed to see a move of the Spirit of God like I've read about. I want to see a great awakening. It is, it is one of my bucket list asks to the Lord. To watch 
the move of the Spirit to fall over a church, over churches, over a city, over a province, over a country. We are a people birthed out of one of those awakenings. The intention, the big idea of this sermon series, I felt was captured best in a quote. And it's a quote by G. Campbell Morgan. It says this, We cannot organize revival, but we can set our sails to catch the wind from heaven when God chooses to blow upon his people once again. We cannot organize revival but we can set our sails to catch the wind from heaven when God chooses to blow upon his people once again. Let's pray. So Spirit of God, blow on us. Father, we ask for a fresh outpouring of your Spirit for our church, for your church, for your people, for our city, for our for our province, for our nation. Lord, in the words of Habakkuk, we pray, we've heard of your fame, Lord, and we stand in awe of your deeds. Repeat them in our day. In our time, Lord Jesus, would you make them known. In your name we pray, amen. David Lloyd-Jones says that revival means days of heaven upon earth. Days of heaven upon earth. I want that. Now listen, if you have some idea that when you get to heaven, sorry, my mic's bugging my collar. If you have this idea that when you get to heaven, you're like sitting on a cloud playing a harp, you're wrong. All right? You're wrong. You're just wrong. See, we're going to worship and we're going to work and we're going to live. And this world, the beauty that we see here, that's but a foreshadowing of what's to come, friends. It's just a foreshadowing. Like we can't even behold the beauty of the Lord that's coming. But I would really love to experience days of heaven upon this earth. And I suspect you're with me. You want that too. So this morning, our message is going to be based out of the book of Kings. It's actually the second book of Kings, but we need some context. So God formed a people group. He started with a guy named Abram, changed his name to Abraham, and the story goes. He has a son, he has a son, they have twins, they fight, lots of sibling rivalry, lots of disobedience. And then God's people whine and moan because they are moanheads, if you don't know that. And when I say them, I mean us. We are moanheads. So the people of God were whining, saying, we want to look like all the other nations. Please give us a human king. They had a king. They had the best king they could have, but they were moanheads, so they asked for a king. And so God said, all right, you have a king. And he anointed a guy named Saul. Now listen, he was handsome. He was tall. He was pretty. He was pretty, but he was a schmuck. 
lesson to behold. Pretty girls named Delilah, pretty boys named Saul. Take warning. Pretty doesn't mean good. Pretty's just pretty. So Saul, who was anointed by God to be king of God's people, was unfaithful. He just, he just became a jerk, frankly. He became a schmuck. He disobeyed God. He was condescending. He didn't honor his role. He didn't respect the high calling he was given. And he was a mess. So God did what God does. And he made a better way. And that's where we get King David. Now, tall, pretty boy Saul, then all these brothers of Jesse, all these sons of Jesse. And it's like, well, it's none of you. Who's left? No, it can't be. It's just David. He's just a kid in the field. It was David. And that's when we hear the heart of the Lord, that he doesn't look on the outside. He looks at our heart. And David becomes king. And, and before you think David is all that in a bag of chips, he's not. He, he's an idiot. He makes really bad choices. Except here's the thing. He keeps returning to the Lord. And, and, and David realizes that he's an idiot. And he brings it before the Lord and he repents. And God ends up saying that David is a man after his own heart. Not because, not because David lived a perfect life, but because when, when David failed, when he blew it, he fell on his face before the Lord. And it wasn't always quick. Like there was this one time where God had to send somebody else to confront David. But David kept returning to the Lord. You know, his, his heart was hardwired to the heart of the king. But David made a whole lot of mistakes. And then he had his son, Solomon. There was a whole bunch of drama in David's family. If you think that your family has drama, read the Old Testament, read Chronicles, read Kings, find out about David's life. I promise you, your life is way better. So then, so then we have Solomon, and Solomon asks the Lord for wisdom. And the Lord says, hey, because you didn't ask for a long life, I'm going to give you wisdom, and I'm going to give you a long life, and I'm going to make you rich. Wisest guy to ever live, and he was so dumb, it wasn't even funny. Because of pretty girls. I'm telling you, pretty's not always good. So Solomon, he has every man in the house and online. Why would you want a whole bunch of wives? One is a lot of work. <laughs> I, I'm a wife, I know. So Solomon picks all these wives, and then he has concubines, and then they're worshiping false gods, and it's a mess. It's a mess, and God is angry. And he's about to cast judgment, and the judgment is going to come, and the kingdom's going to be divided. And he doesn't strip Solomon of the throne. He doesn't do it to Solomon out of honor to David. But th then the kingdom's divided. And so the nation of Israel gets cut. And you have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is Israel. And they fall to the Assyrians and become no more. It was 10 tribes. 10 of the tribes are in the northern kingdom. Eventually the Assyrians come in, wipe them out, they're dispersed forever. Then you have the southern kingdom. 
And that is where Jerusalem is. It's where the temple is, and it's called Judah now. So in the northern kingdom, they only ever have bad kings. It's a nightmare on wheels all the time. And in the southern kingdom, there's some good kings, and there's some bad kings. And probably the worst king of the southern kingdom is a guy named Manasseh. Manasseh is a lunatic. He reigns for about 55 years, and he is so entrenched in the occult that he sacrifices one of his own kids. Like, it's disgusting, and it's a mess. And there are, there are idols everywhere, including in the temple. And it is just absolute debauchery. God's temple, God's throne. There's no semblance of worshiping the king. So Manasseh dies and his son takes over and he's no better. And in fact, he doesn't last for very long because his own crew have him assassinated. And then Amon, the guy, the king that was assassinated, Manasseh's son, his son comes on the scene. Now he's an eight-year-old boy. And his name is Josiah. And Josiah's heart was tender. And that amazes me. His grandfather was a lunatic. His father was no better. But Josiah's heart, Josiah's heart was tender to the things of the Lord. See, this is why, folks, it doesn't matter what our genealogy is. The Spirit of God will step into anything. So here's this eight-year-old boy, and he ends up on the throne. And in the 18th year of his reign, he is, he is working at having the temple repaired. And so just so you can take note of this, you can read about this in 2 Chronicles 34 and 35. We'll give you history. The thing about the Old Testament is that there's a lot of stuff. So we're not going to unpack it all. We're going to land in 2 Kings and I would encourage you to read chapter 22 and 23 of 2 Kings for the whole context. So here's what's happening. It's the 18th year of Josiah's reign. And the temple is being repaired. And Josiah's secretary, um, Shapan, goes to the temple to tell the high priest, Hilkiah, to get ready to pay the workers. And Hilkiah tells the secretary that he's found the book of the law in the temple. The book of the law has been recovered. And Japan reports everything back to Josiah, and he reads the book of the law to the king. So we're going to just pick up some four verses here, okay? 2 Kings 22, verses 8 to 11. Hilkiah the high priest said to Japan the secretary, I found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. And he gave it to Japan who read it. And then Japan, the secretary, who went to the king to report to him, your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and has entrusted it to the workers and the supervisors at the temple. Why that was the first piece of information shared, I have no clue. Then Japan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Japan read from the book in the presence of the king. Now catch this. When the king... Josiah, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his 
robes. It goes on to tell us that he actually sends people to go see a prophet. A female prophet. That's a whole other sermon, friends. So read 2 Kings 22. And not because Josiah knew. He was convicted immediately, but he wanted to know more. So inquiring of the Lord. So they go to the prophet. The prophet says, judgment is coming. This has been debauchery. God is coming in full judgment. But the Lord has seen the heart of Josiah. So Josiah will not see destruction. But it's coming. Josiah then cleans up everything. He gets rid, he gets rid of the idols. He gets rid of the mess in the temple and in society. Because now they're going to be a people who honor the word, who obey the law. And in fact, in chapter 23, it says this about Josiah. Never before, nor after Josiah, was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his strength in accordance with the law of Moses. So I've been thinking about this. What do you want said at the end of your life? I want this. I, I want to be somebody where in full good conscience it can be said that she turned to the Lord with all of her heart, with all of her soul, and all of her strength and lived according to the word. But it requires something of us, doesn't it? See, the book of the law that had been returned was probably, scholars believe, the book of Deuteronomy. So it would have been the book of Deuteronomy that had been read to Josiah that day. When was the last time you read Deuteronomy? Don't raise your hand, I know. But here's this interesting thing. See, Moses, back in Moses' day, he had commanded that the book of the law would be beside the Ark of the Covenant. That, that God's word would always be with his people. And, and it was, but it had been so strongly neglected. Judah had been in this prolonged state of absolute rebellion. But there's some interesting things from the book of Deuteronomy that we should make note of. See, in Deuteronomy 17, it says that each king was to have their own personal copy of the law, and they were to read it. Josiah didn't have one, which means it hadn't been passed down. Where did it go? Deuteronomy also said that every seven years at the Feast of Tabernacles, the entire law was to be read to the assembly, to the whole nation. Every seven years, the whole law read publicly to all God's people. So this clearly wasn't happening. We kind of know that because in Joshua chapter 8, there is a reference to the, to the law being read to the nation. And we find it again in 2 Chronicles 17. This is like 500 years apart. 
So it's probably safe to conclude that most likely the law was not read to the assembly every seven years. See, the point here is that somewhere along the way, the people of God lost track, they lost interest, and they lost passion for the word of God. There was a recent survey, it's American, from the American Bible Society that wanted to determine the number of Bible users and how the pandemic impacted that. And the, the term Bible users was defined to use the Bible at least three to four times each year. When I first read that, I thought a week. I thought a week. But no, it really says three to four times a year. The people would open their Bible for themselves three or four times a year outside of going to church. In 2021 to 2022, the number of Bible users three to four times a year dropped from 50% of churchgoers to 39%. It concludes here that it equals 25 million Americans no longer consult their Bible three to five times a year. Very recently, like last week, there was an article. I've printed it from U.S. Today, and it says, Christianity projected to lose majority status among Americans by 2070, Pew model projects. So, they are suggesting that there's four scenarios to forecast this dropping off of Christianity in the United States. So, scenario number one is the Christian population will no longer be the majority, but retains um, some popularity. Scenario number two Nearly half of the U.S. religiously affiliated will become unaffiliated. Scenario number three, most of the U.S. will be secular by 2070. Scenario number four, Christianity remains a slim majority by 2070, but that's the least likely they're believing to happen. Did I tell you Jesus is coming back? See, here's the thing. We have a lot of American statistics, but here, us in the great white north, our reality is even worse. We are way more secular than the United States already. And I would love to see the projections for Canada. But I think we can, and I'm, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, so keep your hands down. I, I think that if we just asked a question, how, how many of you read the word of God every day? Three to four times a week couple times a month. 
See, we're not, we're not talking to something that's happening outside the church. We're talking about something that's happening to us, the people of God. So we can read through Chronicles and Kings and say, where on earth did the scripture go? How dare they? But how dare us? See, although written by men and maybe one woman, that's a sermon for another day, this matters. All 66 of these books matter. And I would gently argue that if you don't know this book, you might not know him. Because everything we know about the Lord we find here. How we, his character, his love, his nature, his judgment, his promises, they're all here. And so, loved ones, the call to us this morning is to return. If we want to be revived, we have to return. See, throughout history, from ancient history to modern history, when the people of God recover and return to the Word of God, spiritual revival follows. I need you to hear me. Throughout all of history, ancient history and modern history, when the people of God recover and return to the Word of God, spiritual revival follows. So we can talk about revival all we want. And we can pray and we can fast and we can mourn and we can tear our clothes. But if we are not reading the word, we're in trouble. If you are not reading the word, you are in trouble. See, loved ones, God's word is true. His promise of blessing is true. But his promise of judgment is equally as true. Listen, we have bought a lie. We have become universalists. What do I mean by that? We really do, as a society, but even amongst the body, tend to believe that everybody goes to heaven. And when you think, oh, not me, I'm going to challenge you. With all due respect, in all love, I've had the people of God lose a loved one whom we both know wasn't walking with the Lord. And, and I get it's the place of grief because I get that the thought of not having a loved one with God in glory is unimaginable. And I get that at the end of the day, God is the one who knows our hearts. 
But we, we will do spiritual gymnastics at the loss of a loved one to tell others that they're in heaven. Well, back in 1932, they read the Gospel of Mark. And, I, and I'm, I'm not making a mockery of that. But see, here's the thing. Our loving God is an absolute gentleman. And he gives us truly what we ask for. So if we choose to reject him in this life, he will not force himself on us in the next one. He gives us what we've asked for. No Jesus, no Jesus. Recently, the Lord really kind of convicted me of something. If, if somebody has lived their whole life rejecting the truth of the gospel, why on earth would we assume they want to be with Jesus for eternity? They already don't like him. Now, if you long for Jesus, he will invite you in. But we have to understand that, that everything in this is true. The promises and the judgment. See, Josiah responded appropriately to the hearing of the law, and he grieved. He grieved his sin, and he grieved the sin of his nation, and he did something about it. But judgment still came. See, the southern kingdom eventually fell to the Babylonians. Judgment came. They rebuilt a temple in 70 AD. The temple is gone. Judgment came. God will always deal with rebellion. So we, we cannot pretend otherwise. And the only way for you and I to be on course is to return to the word. For us to take 66 books seriously for us to have a regular time in this book daily because it matters. Because this is the living, breathing word of God. And it will change you. Jeremiah 6, 16 says this. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. I want you to hear that again. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Jeremiah says that, and he says, and, but you didn't do it, by the way. Here we have a moment, a reset moment, a chance to be revived. And what if the way forward is in part back? Back to when this book had a place in the homes of the people. Back 
to the time where this, where this was the food we needed to survive. If we want to set our sails to the blowing of heaven's wind, we have to begin with a return to the word. We have to begin by taking the word of God seriously. Now, I want to remind you that thanks to this book, we do know that God's mercy is new every day. So what was doesn't matter. It's about what is now. You have a brand new fresh start. And if you are a young person, I want to encourage you and Bible college students, I know that this becomes a textbook, but never forsake it. You need this book. You need it to survive in this world. See, the Bible shows us the character of God. He reveals who he is in this book. And if you don't know the book, you can't know him. The Bible teaches us how to be like him. See, we're to be holy because he is holy, but what does holiness look like? Holiness is not defined by the world, it's defined by God. You have to read the scripture to know. See, it's this book that keeps us from sin. The psalmist said, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. See, God gave the law to expose the hearts of the people. We're called to to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. You will think like the world. If the world is all you know, if the world is where you spend all your time and your energy and all the inputting into yourself is from the world, you will be like the world. If you want to be transformed, if you want to be renewed, then you have to yield to the word of God. Because that's where renewal comes from. That's where the transformation comes from. Everywhere we go and everything we do is telling us how to think. If you don't believe me, watch a commercial. It is telling you what to think. And before you know it, you've been fed all of your opinions. You're to be holy because he is holy. You are chosen, appointed, citizens of heaven. You're not to think like this world. You're to think like your king. But you can't know the thoughts of your king if you don't read his word. See, you will never know how much God loves you unless you read this book. You'll never know. You'll never know what he's overcome on the cross. See, this book defeats the enemy. When we read the Bible, it gives us life and it grows our faith. 
And perhaps one of the biggest indicators that we have lost our way with regards to the reading of the word is that we buy into false teaching all the time. God doesn't care to make you rich. It's not health, wealth, and the American dream. It's about your holiness. It's about your heart and your mind being the heart and mind of Christ. And we will be led astray so easily. Why? Because we are sheep. If you've not been to a farm, go to a sheep farm. They are dumb. I'm not kidding. We had sheep when I was little. Sheep will, like, they're just, they're dumb. They need to be led. They cannot do anything for themselves. And the Lord who made us, by the way, who knit you together in your mother's womb, says you are a sheep that you cannot be trusted to be on your own. You need a shepherd. And good news, he's the good shepherd. I want to see a move of God. I want to see a move of God that I've read in the history books. I want to see the prayer of Habakkuk to come to pass in this day because the world is so broken and we are so lost and we are so bound. I want to see the captive set free. I, I want to see our church filled with the broken and the hungry and the lost. I want them to know the lover of my soul. I want them to know that there is more than anything this world has to offer. But we have to return. Collectively, but individually, we have to return. The word of God must be a priority in our life. Because without it, we're in trouble. So what do you do? Technology is a blessing and a curse. Because some of you are going to come up to me and say, I'm not a good reader. And you know what? That's okay. Technology says you don't have to be. There are tons of Bible apps. But I'm actually going to promote one. The YouVersion Bible app. Go to the Play Store, go to the App Store. If you do not have it, get it. The icon is like brown and it says Holy Bible on it. Get it. It has reading plans. Under plans. Under Bible, you can pick whatever translation you need. And listen, it's an okay translation. If it's on there, you can trust it. I, I like the NIV. If you're in Bible college, I think you have to use the ESV. I'm sorry. No, it's good. But the NLT is a really easy read, or the CEB. If you look around this room, we have Bible scholars with us. We have Bible college teachers in our midst and former Bible college teachers in our midst. You have pastors in this room. 
if you are looking for a translation for you, you can reach out to any one of us. We will help guide you and make suggestions. See, there, there's no reason. We have every way. And the best part of it is you can pick your version, then you can pick the book and the chapter, and then somebody will read it to you. So you can follow along, or you can just hear it, or you can just read it. See, we are living in a day where there's no excuse to not have high Bible engagement. But it begins with you. It begins with you. I promise you it's not boring. So here's the other thing. You're feeling convicted and, yep, I'm going to do this. Okay, don't start in Genesis. Don't start at the beginning. Okay? Just, just don't. Start in the Gospel of Mark or start in a Gospel. Go right through the New Testament right now. I happen to love the Old Testament, particularly the Minor Prophets. But you can build up to that. But the call is to be honest this morning. See, the Lord, there's no secrets between you and him. Even if you think there are, let me tell you, there's not. He knows everything and he loves you anyhow. And his mercy is new every day. See, when we don't engage the word, we're at risk of becoming Manassas. We, we are at risk of going that far from God that we become part of an occult. We can forsake the truth and be so bound to the enemy because he hates your guts. So we need to flee from him and run into the Lord. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And as they begin to play, I'm going to turn this over for a minute between you and the Holy Spirit. See, when, when Josiah was confronted, the scripture says he tore his clothes and he grieved. He grieved over his own personal sin and he grieved over the sin of the nation. And maybe, just maybe, the word of God has not truly been a priority in your life. Maybe it's not been one of those foundational things. So this morning, you have work to do. See, see God's love is not condemning, it's perfecting. So you need to respond to him. If it's something that you have not made a priority in your life, then you need to repent of that. You need to acknowledge it before the Lord. And then you need to choose to do it differently. You need to choose to engage. So we're going to take a couple of minutes this morning, church, to be alone with the Lord. So if you want to move out, 
You can, you can kneel where you are. You can bow where you are. You can come to the front of the altar. If you stay outside this triangle on the floor, you are not in line for our online folks. But we need to respond to the Lord this morning. So, Father God, move in our midst. Holy Spirit, correct what needs to be corrected in our life. So people take a moment before the Lord. Confess what needs to be confessed. Commit what needs to be committed.